this episode of 11 Point Collar is brought to you by Sesame Place and weirdos like you. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, for those of you following along in our semi-facetious battle with the Muppet cast, I crashed Steve Swanson's party at Sesame Place, and we made a truce. There will now be peace between the two podcasts, until he does something slanderous against me again in the near future. Over the next couple of months, you'll get to see and hear more about our fun adventures in Langhorn over at MuppetCast.com, and you can check back here at Muppet Hub afterwards to hear me complain about how Steve never got my good side. If you haven't figured it out by now, this episode of 11 Point Collar is not for the first-timers. So, if you're new to the show, I recommend you start a few episodes back, maybe at the beginning of our 10 Days of Jim and Frank event with our interview with Brian J. Jones. You know, I've actually been thinking a lot lately about just how many of my old episodes are better suited for those who've been listening for a while than they are for those who've never heard the show before. And I've got an idea. How about I re-release some of the older episodes, but I modify them a little to make them more like what I think new listeners would want to hear, and call it the 11 Point Collar Special Edition. And I'll never let anyone listen to the original versions ever again. I think this would be a good idea because they say a podcast episode is never finished, and I think perhaps that's true. When I look back at some of my earlier work, I don't think it's really finished. So the next time you hear last year's interview with Ryan Dozier, I want to make sure everyone can really hear the monster that I'd subtly suggested was lurking behind us as we conversed. For, I had been on Muppet Central for about five years at that point, and I noticed that around the Muppet fan community online, there was never really a place where Muppet fans could submit writing that would be read by anyone. Yeah. Like, people wrote on... Okay, but seriously, folks, Star Wars parody aside, I might actually update a few of the episodes of the show from the past two years so they cut right to the chase, right to the interesting part, and serve as a good introduction to 11 Point Collar. But I would certainly keep the original versions of the episodes available to all of you purists out there. How does that sound? Let me know what you think by shooting me an email at notme at muppethub.com. That's N-O-T-M-E at muppethub.com. It was a part of the deal I made with Steve Swanson at Sesame Place. The Facebook page for Muppet Hub can be found at facebook.com slash jd11pc, and the Twitter, Tumblr, and other usernames are also jd11pc. You can also leave me a comment on any of the posts or pages on the website, MuppetHub.com, and be sure to comment on and like our stuff all over the social networking world. Please give us a little review in iTunes if you can to support our show. No matter what you say, it would be helpful feedback. Unless you just say Hugga Wugga. That wouldn't be helpful feedback because it doesn't really mean anything. Myrtley Dop is fine as long as you give me five stars. And the same goes for Gribbaziggy, Wugga Wug Scooberish, Menomina, and Tamanella Grinderfall. Moving right along, this week's show is going to be very different from most other episodes because I've decided to take this podcast in a new direction, just for one episode. I was thinking a little bit about what I said in my Mubbacast parody, available exclusively at MubbitHub.com, concerning my personal life, or lack thereof. I'm starting to wonder just how much you guys know about me, that is the non-Muppet side of me. So this week, 
let's talk about me. I've decided to break up the podcast into two halves, sort of like what they did with the Jim Henson Hour, except that this show won't be a colossal failure. Right? The first half is when I'll tell you a little bit about myself, and I'll try to sort out the different main aspects of my life into their own segments for the sake of organizational structure and all that jazz. The second half will basically be J.D. Hansel Radio, in which I'll play some of my favorite songs, or just songs I'd like you to hear because I think they're underrated. I'm going to try to arrange them mostly chronologically, with the intent of keeping a good flow going with genre consistency, and I just have to hope and pray I don't get into much trouble with iTunes or ASCAP or BMI or the FCC for this. I'll give you fair warning right now that it might end up being more than just the second half, depending on how many songs I play, so be prepared for the last uh, two-thirds of the show, or maybe three-fourths of the show to be the music portion. I don't know. We'll play it by ear. But without further ado, let's start off the personal life portion of this episode with a couple of songs that express the internal conflict I constantly deal with between the passionate optimist and the exhausted pessimist that both dwell in the core of my being. Splendid. Then he died the day he planned to go and spend it shouting, Live your alive, no one will survive. Life is sorrow, here today and gone tomorrow. Live your alive, no one will survive. There's no guarantee for the best. Expect the worst. Chances, there are no answers. Hope for the best, expect the worst. 
heart gets restless, time to move along. When your heart gets weary, time to sing a song. But when a dream is calling you, there's just one thing that you can do. Someone to look for my dream with me And when I find her, I may find out Just what my dreams are all about Personal life. Hello, I'm JD. Hi, JD. Oh, shut up. I was born and raised in Delaware, and I'm the oldest of five. This, of course, has come with a lot of responsibility and a wee bit of anxiety, but I ended up learning to be rather mature for my age pretty early on in life. The joke in the family is that I didn't really have a childhood because I've always just been an old man. I think I was actually referred to as an old man in church back when I was just out of the toddler phase because, while the other boys could barely talk, I'd apparently stand up and give a mini-sermon, from what I hear. Now, to be fair, I did have something of a childhood because I did like to play children's games, for a little while anyway, and I did like watching Sesame Street and Barney and all that. But at the same time, I really wanted people to listen to what I had to say. Naturally, I quickly developed the ability to converse well, but that was never enough for people to value my thoughts as much as I would have liked. So I guess I just rushed through my childhood as fast as I could, always eager to be a respected adult who didn't have any direct authority figure puppeteering my personal life. By the time I'd reached the ripe old age of six and a half, I'd already become girl crazy. I was itching to have a girlfriend, or even a wife, at the age when most kids were worried about cooties. You know what, just roll the clip from Annie Hall, it says it all. He kissed me, he kissed me! That's the second time this month! Step up here! What did I do? Step up here! What did I do? You should be ashamed of yourself! Why? I was just expressing a healthy sexual curiosity. Six-year-old boys don't have girls on their minds. I did. For God's sake, Savvy, every Freud speaks of a latency period. Well, I never had a latency period. I can't help it. That was my childhood. But well until I became very pessimistic around the age of nine, at which point I suddenly channeled other scenes from Annie Hall. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm obsessed with, uh, with death, I think. It's a big, yeah. big subject with me, yeah. yeah. I have a very pessimistic view of life. You should know this about me if we're going to go out. You know, I, I feel that life is, is divided up into the horrible and the miserable. Those mm -hmm. are the two categories, you know. The, uh, the horrible would be like, um, I don't know, terminal cases, you know, and blind people, yeah. crippled. I don't know how they get through life. It's amazing to me. You know, and the miserable is everyone else. That's, that's, so, so when you go through life, you should be thankful that you're miserable because that's, you're very lucky to, to be miserable. That's the important thing to remember about who I was when I was young. That, and I liked drawing a lot, watched a lot of Spider-Man, read some Archie comics, and eventually took up puppetry as a hobby. Anyway, 
I was homeschooled until the 8th grade, which is when I went to a tiny private school in Delaware before going to a slightly less tiny school for high school. It was in high school that I discovered my ADD and had something of a crisis of faith and started to discover more and more about what kind of mind I really have. I now know that I'm naturally skeptical, I can't focus on that which bores me, I focus too much on that which interests me, I have the strangest memory, I frequently have to cut off my empathy at a certain point for the sake of my sanity, I deal with an above average amount of anxiety for my age, I don't like children, my brain is dreadfully dysfunctional and in many ways utterly stupid, and in other ways I'm kind of a creative genius. With this knowledge, I did dual enrollment for my last year of high school so I could move right along to college, and the rest is history. I'm now residing in Maryland, where I am dealing with the struggle of figuring out whether or not to continue my college studies, uh, and if I do, I have to figure out where. I'm in the process of looking for more work because a guy's gotta eat, and I'm trying to get Muppet Hub to pay for itself so that I don't have to end this website, which frankly is a bit of a worry for me. I'm also trying to arrange more vacations in my life because I need to relax more, and I'm working on getting better at networking and marketing myself. Hopefully all that gives you a pretty good idea of where I'm at in life right now and how I got here, but if you want me to get more personal than that, no. I love movies. It's almost undoubtedly my favorite form of storytelling. When I was a wee little child, I grew up mostly on the Disney movies. I almost never watched The Wizard of Oz because I was afraid of the Wicked Witch, and I almost never watched Follow That Bird because I was uncomfortable with seeing Big Bird turn to blue, so that pretty much left me with the Barney movie and the early Disney Renaissance films. The two movies I watched most often, at least to my memory, were probably Mary Poppins and Cinderella. I also remember really enjoying the original Parent Trap, starring Haley Mills and Haley Mills, and I'm pretty sure I watched MGM's Charlotte's Web very frequently. And as an aside, Charlotte's Web, much like Parent Trap and Mary Poppins, also had Sherman Brothers music. Obviously, I'm oversimplifying my early influences and my tastes in movies, but this gives you the idea. I'm very thankful that I was raised watching movies at Disney-level quality when I could have been watching Home Alone 3 or Richie Rich or Swan Princess or Casper. I'd like to think that I got a decent sense of what a high-quality film looks like and feels like in comparison to a film none of its makers really cared about. However, because of the tastes of my younger siblings, I did end up watching a lot of bad family movies in my day, and I wasn't always able to tell just how crappy they were. I suppose this sort of took a turn when I got really interested in Jim Henson, so I saw the Muppet movies and Labyrinth and Dark Crystal, which gave me different standards by which I could judge movies. I became more interested in classic musicals such as The Sound of Music or Singing in the Rain, and eventually The Wizard of Oz. And after that, I discovered more classic comedies like The Pink Panther or Monty Python and the Holy Grail and Airplane. Because I had a love of cartoons at a very young age, I remember being absolutely stunned when I saw Who Framed Roger Rabbit on TV as a kid, and it has remained one of my top 10 favorites of all time to this day. I think it was my uncle who got me started watching Mel Brooks films, starting with Spaceballs, and I've since become a bigger and bigger fan of his work. 
By the time I was entering high school, I must have known that I wanted to, at least to some degree, follow in Jim Henson's footsteps, if such a thing is even possible. This meant I wanted to work in television and film, and I started having lots of ideas for the kinds of TV shows and movies I wanted to do. Now, I'd always been very imaginative, and I'd actually had plans, big plans, for making big movies since I was about eight, so becoming a filmmaker wasn't a big leap. In due time, I came to love more and more brilliant classics, such as Ghostbusters, Back to the Future, Hook, The Truman Show, and what is perhaps the most epic comedy of all time, Duck Soup. I love the Marx Brothers dearly, and I've been a fan ever since I saw Night at the Opera when I was very young, but boy did I have a fun time watching Duck Soup. When I came across the Mel Brooks classic High Anxiety, I had no idea that it would become my favorite out of all his films, if only because the characters and story are exactly the kind of thing I'd be interested in even if it wasn't a Mel Brooks film. I eventually discovered that there is a particular visual style that really appeals to me, which is the theatrical, colorful, and kinda dark style seen in Beetlejuice, or West Side Story, or Little Shop of Horrors the last of which really impressed me with its excellent puppetry and music. The puppetry in Gremlins, uh, the Gremlins series, actually, has also knocked my socks off, and I appreciate these movies more and more every time I watch them. Although, oddly enough, I saw the sequel first when it was on TV, which compelled me to watch the first. I should mention that I also came to realize which movies weren't really my thing. I've discovered that I'm not much of a Spielberg person, because while he's produced many of the movies I love, he tends to bore me as a director. I also don't really go for Pixar movies much, as I know I have uh, expressed in the past and will articulate more clearly in the future, and I get really annoyed with preachy movies. That being said, Mystery Science Theater 3000 taught me how to love terrible movies, and I rarely get through one Christmas season without watching Santa Claus Conquers the Martians. One day last autumn, it occurred to me that I'd had a lot of ideas for movies all around the same time during the summer and fall of 2014, and I was struggling to keep track of them all. I'd also had a number of great ideas before then, but I was documenting only a small few of them. So I decided I would try to make a list of my movie ideas that would keep them together, organized mostly chronologically. Little did I know just how many ideas I would start to have all the time just because I now had a document to fill with them. Many of these ideas deal with the philosophical concepts that I've been pondering lately, usually with a satirical spin on them. And I've thought of stuff in several, several styles and genres that I think would appeal to a lot of people. It's been almost a year since I started the list, and I've since had to split it into different lists because I've had over 130 ideas in that time, so it's getting too big to manage easily. My relationship with cinema got more interesting when I took a history of film course in college, and this exposed me to so many great films and great filmmakers. It was in this class that I watched Citizen Kane for the first time, and I was not disappointed. I was also exposed to Some Like It Hot, and I can't believe I had never heard of such a historically significant and excellently crafted film before. It's amazing, and I totally see why many consider it to be the best comedy of all time. When we watched 2001 A Space Odyssey, it was a terrible experience for me, and I'm pretty sure that's the only movie ever to make me literally bored to tears. But I still learned a lot about myself and about film from that experience. The most important thing that happened in this class for me, however, was probably when I learned who Woody Allen was after we watched a clip from Annie Hall. This got me started watching a lot of Woody Allen films regularly, and his work really, really means a lot to me. 
Because I was required to review a couple of movies for the History of Film class, I found that I actually really enjoyed reviewing movies and I wanted to get better at it. So, last summer, I started reviewing each and every movie that I watched for my first time, excluding documentaries and movies I watch only through MST3K or Rift Tracks Live. Looking back, I've been amazed at just how much my writing has improved. You can see what I've been watching and reviewing over on JDHansel.com, where my film criticism section is filled with some of my latest writings on movies old and new, classic and obscure. So now, I am proud to present my top 100 favorite movies of all time, excluding that which I only enjoy seeing riffed by the MST3K crew. Keep in mind that the organization of the list is approximate, so give or take at least 15 spaces up or down. Number 1, The Muppet Movie Series, starting with the 1979 Muppet Movie, then Caper or Muppet Treasure Island, I can never decide which of those to put in second place, followed by Muppets Most Wanted, which is very closely followed by the 2011 Muppet Movie, and then probably Muppet Christmas Carol, Muppets Take Manhattan, then lastly away in the background Muppets from Space. Number 2, Jim Henson's Labyrinth, and then Duck Soup, again, Marx Brothers, great film, you gotta see it, then Who Framed Roger Rabbit, and then the Gremlins series. I'd say the second Gremlins is my favorite. I really find that one to be absolutely hilarious and has one of the greatest musical numbers in cinematic history. Little Shop of Horrors is the next one, number six, and that's just great musical numbers all throughout. Brilliant film, looks great, and the way to watch it is the director's cut. That original ending is gorgeous. I mean, that's one of the best visual experiences I've ever had, and that's the way to watch it. The Dark Crystal, number seven, is also very visually interesting, and I probably respect it more than I really, really enjoy watching it. I just have an immense respect for that. But Mary Poppins, the next one, also visually great, and probably another one of the reasons why I love that theatrical visual style but Mary Poppins, I don't just respect it in and out, I really just have a ball watching it. It's a great movie with great music. High Anxiety has a very underrated theme song, and as I've said before, it's a great story. The story works well on its own, but when you throw in Mel Brooks comedy and have such a great cast, I mean, what could possibly go wrong? I'm not even that big of a Hitchcock fan, and yet, even without being focused on the Hitchcock parodies, it's still an enjoyable movie, and I think that says a lot about how great of a film it is, if you don't even need to know what's being parodied. After that's the Back to the Future series. This is number 10, and so I guess that would make my top 10. I have to say that either the first or second is my favorite, probably the first, but I don't know. I really think that the second is uh, very visually appealing, probably more so than the first. And then the third is in third place. Then the Naked Gun series. Once again, I'm going to go with the first in the series first. That's the brilliant movie that I just can't get enough of. And then the second, and then the third was a little disappointing. The Truman Show never disappoints. That is flippin' awesome. I've wanted to see a movie like that my whole life, and I was so happy when I finally found it. And I'm not a big fan of the main actor, but still, he pulls this role off, and it's a delight. After that's The Wizard of Oz, I mean, a brilliant classic, great visuals, great story, great characters, great music, and I recently noticed that each of the characters has their own distinct way of moving, so you would recognize them just by the way that they move, because one's more cat-like, one's more robotic, one's more floppy and noodly. So just, there's just so much that went into The Wizard of Oz to make it incredibly detailed and delightful and absolutely perfect. 
Play It Again Sam is after that. That is my favorite film that Woody Allen has been involved in, even though he didn't direct this one. Gosh, it's so amazing. One of the very, very, very few films that can make me make me be nearly rolling on the floor with laughter, and yet at the same time, the drama in that scene makes me cover my eyes in fear. Not because of something particularly scary, not in a traditional sense like horror, but just my social anxiety comes out. Because it just has just the right way to play with my emotions, and it's really brilliant. Then the Ghostbusters series, one then two, no explanation needed there. Uh, Some Like It Hot with Marilyn Monroe, and uh, just see it. Monty Python and the Holy Grail, obvious why that's here. The Breakfast Club. Then Hunchback of Notre Dame. I guess that's my favorite Disney animated film, if you don't count Who Framed Roger Rabbit. It's certainly their darkest, I think, and perhaps that's what I like about it. Then Young Frankenstein, hilarious. Uh, The Princess Bride, also very funny, brilliant, great, strong characters. Ever After, interestingly enough, is after that. I don't like Drew Barrymore. That being said, her character in this is great, and she totally pulls it off, and it's a brilliant film. Uh, Wayne's World, great comedy. Beetlejuice, visually amazing, but also a really interesting story. Silver Linings Playbook, a very impressive film that really moved me emotionally in a number of different ways. Annie Hall, well, you can understand why I'd have to have Annie Hall up here. Then the Lego movie, everything about it is awesome. Citizen Kane, I Am Big Bird, The Carol Spinney Story. Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home, my favorite of the Star Trek movies that I've seen thus far. It's so fun. I love that movie. I love a good, fun Star Trek movie. Then The Lion King one and a half, interestingly enough. I know you probably don't like it. I may be the only person who likes this movie, but just the concept of it, I think. If you really look at the original trailer and see what the idea is, take these two side characters from this Shakespearean masterpiece that everyone thinks is really great and have these characters try to convince you, the audience, that that masterpiece all happened because of them. That's the premise of the film, and that's brilliant. Then Airplane, Follow That Bird, it's gotta be on here. I mean, it's the good Sesame Street movie. It has to be here. Then the Harry Potter series. I'm going to put the fifth Harry Potter movie first, closely followed by the second in the series, uh, and then the first, and then probably the eighth, or the seventh, uh, then uh, the fourth or the sixth. I'm not going to use the full names here. You can look these up. But the third one, I don't remember the name of the third one at all. I don't care about the third one. All I remember is at that point, it got really dark and gloomy, and it's like, what? what's the point? All the charm is gone. So that was the most annoying of the films. But the fifth one, Order of the Phoenix, gosh, that's fun. Next is Carrie. And I'm actually talking about the 2013 film, based on the Stephen King novel. I just think it's really well done. It handles the story perfectly fine and really, really got me emotionally sucked in. Then Spaceballs the movie. The Pink Panther, uh, Magic in the Moonlight, that's a pretty recent one from Woody Allen. Being Elmo, of course, great documentary. Monty Python's Life of Brian, which is probably Python's, no, I can say it is Python's most significant film even it's it's their most important film i should say even if it's not the one that everyone loves the most then dr horrible sing-along blog if it's okay for me to include that on this list then silent movie another mel brooks classic so well done i don't go for silence that often um and this one kind of cheats by not really totally being a silent but it's just so carefully crafted i can't help but love it 
Then Sleeper, another Woody Allen film. That was a very fun uh, experience watching that one. Then Star Trek II, Wrath of Khan, Crazy People, the Hunger Games series. I, I'm going with the third first, oddly enough, but it's very, very closely followed by the second. Uh, and, and then the first film is probably the weakest thus far. Honestly, the third Hunger Games movie kind of nearly moved me to tears, which doesn't happen. After that is Clue, brilliant screenplay. Such a good screenplay and such good performances acting it out. 48, Hot Fuzz, same thing. Brilliant screenplay, so well done, and great performances acting it out. I mean, if you see anything in Hot Fuzz, you have to see the Romeo and Juliet scene. You have to. 49, Inside Out. So good, Pixar's finest hour by far. Number 50, Hook. Spielberg did make it onto the list with a film that I actually do find interesting and charming, and I think that Robin Williams does a good job with it. 51, Scoop, another Woody Allen film, and this is what I would say is probably his most accessible film. If you have to start it with Woody Allen movies somewhere, this is a good place to start. 52, Doctor Who the movie, then The Graduate. Uh, such a great drama. Such a great drama. I find myself thinking of it all the time. Robin Hood Men in Tights. I know it's considered one of Brooks' weakest, but I'm sorry, honestly, I still get a bigger kick out of this one than I do out of History of the World Part 1. 55, Metropolis. Yes, the old silent movie, but I prefer the Giorgio Moritor version. Then, the 1989 Batman film. I'm always torn whether I prefer the 60s Batman film or the 80s Batman film because I, I, I really, really like both. Um, in general, I'll say I prefer the 1960s Batman, but as a movie, the 89 Batman film is probably a better one. Uh, the Sound of Music, Blazing Saddles, what needs to be said, now the 1966 Batman film, and the 60th film on the list is Ferris Bueller's Day Off, a classic. I don't know how they make it work, someone who's just lucky, doesn't do anything right, but just gets lucky, we should hate that guy. And yet somehow, it's made likable. Now, here's a weird choice, Back to the Beach. I don't know how to defend my interest in this movie, but I really, really like it, and that's all I can say. Singing in the Rain, I'm talking about the Gene Kelly film, of course, what else? It's a little slow, if memory serves, I need to rewatch it, but boy is it impressive. Amelie, one of the few foreign films on the list. It's funny, it's fun, I like it. The Adventures of Rocky and Bullwinkle. Look, I'm allowed to like a few bad movies, okay? And this one was... It, it didn't take itself seriously at all. It just enjoyed its stupidity so much that I came to enjoy its stupidity as well, and it was just a fun party. I mean, in a way, it's a very Muppet movie kind of movie, so I don't know. Don't knock it till you try it. 65, Matinee. Underrated movie, but it's good. I like movies about movies, and this is a very good movie about movies. 66, The Road to El Dorado. That's an underrated DreamWorks movie that's very well done. It's very much the movie movie. If you want to know how to write a screenplay by the standard rules, this is it. 67, The People vs. George Lucas. I don't have that many documentaries on here, but I've got a few. And The People vs. George Lucas, that's one of the better ones. Closely followed by 68, The Hand Behind the Mouse, The Ub Iwerks Story. This is a really, really fascinating movie for anyone interested in uh, Disney history or animation history as I am. Speaking of animation history, well, not so much, but cartoons anyway, with great power, The Stan Lee Story. Another great documentary. If you love Stan Lee, as I do, you have to see it. Then the 2013 film, Her. It 
explores a really interesting idea in a really interesting way with good performances. I, I can't knock it. The Parent Trap, 72, Strike Up the Band. I really do like the old Judy Garland, Mickey Rooney films, and this one's really charming. It's a lot of fun. 12 Angry Men has a lot of actors in it I really like. Well thought out, well done. Cinderella, the 1950 version. Uh, maybe it's just nostalgia, but I still gotta love it. A Night at Casablanca, The Little Mermaid. Charlotte's Web, the 1973 version. As I look over the soundtrack again, I find it's at least got some good music in it. I need to rewatch the movie to make sure that it's actually well written and stuff, but it's got a good soundtrack, so that's, that's gotta count for something. Then The Lion King, obviously well done. Comic Book Confidential, I have always had an interest in comics, so it's not a surprising that that documentary would interest me. Uh, Beauty and the Beast, then Alice, which is the 1990 film, of course, uh, written and directed by Woody Allen, and that's the film in which Woody Allen finally did a really good job with the ending, I think. He, he generally struggles with endings, but Alice has the right one. Then Babes in Arms, another Mickey Rooney and Judy Garland film, it's fun. Shaun of the Dead, pretty different from Babes in Arms, but uh, if you can ignore all the blood, gosh, that is funny. Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, so well done. The Unbelievers, very fascinating documentary. If you get the chance to watch it on Netflix, please do so. 86, Ed Wood. I'm talking about the 1994 Tim Burton film, uh, which is about Ed Wood. It's, it's tough to make someone who makes really hateable movies likable, but this, this movie totally pulls it off. Flushed Away, not many people like this movie. I seem to remember enjoying it growing up, maybe I need to rewatch it again, but if memory serves, even as I got older and older and older, I'd still find something very funny and enjoyable about it as I watched it and something clever in there. Everything you always wanted to know about sex but were too afraid to ask. It's a different style than most of the movies I watch, but it works really well and it's really fun. Delirious from 1991, interesting idea and it's explored well and it's fun. Haunted Honeymoon. I gotta say, I don't remember this one all that well at this point, but I certainly remember enjoying it a lot. Uh, it was good fun because it has, had a good cast. Uh, Guardians of the Galaxy, uh, the 1982 film Annie. I do like musicals, and this is a good one with some really great performances in it. I Know That Voice, wonderful documentary. You have to see it if you're interested in cartoons at all. Uh, Aladdin, visually, it's some of Disney's best work. Great performances in that, great music. Then, oddly enough, the Spy Kids series. I, I didn't think that I liked this series, but then when I came back to it uh, just very recently and I watched much of the series in order, I realized that it actually is a really unique artistic style and is well done in its own way. It's, it's unique in a way that I really appreciate. Um, I didn't appreciate it when I was uh, younger, but now I really like the uh, second one first and then probably the fourth one after that and then the first movie, and then the third movie, and that was, that was kind of just okay. Uh, then 96, Forbidden Planet, uh, one of the great sci-fi movies, I'd say. Uh, now You See Me, a more recent film that didn't get too wide of a theatrical release, uh, but it's an interesting film about magicians and magic, and so if you're into that kind of thing, uh, it's fun. This is Spinal Tap, 98. It's, it's a very fun mockumentary. Uh, if you're interested in music, and if you're familiar with documentaries about musicians, or really if you're just in the mood for a laugh, This Is Spinal Tap is a really fun time. 99, A Night at the Opera. Uh, you know, there are some Marx Brothers movies that I'm not totally crazy about, but this one, it has its scenes that are really strong, so I dig it. Lastly, 100, I'm gonna go with the 1984 Footloose film. 
It's, it's fun, it's charming, it's a classic, it's got a great soundtrack, an interesting story dealing with an interesting conflict. Why not? So, that is my list of what are, for now, my top 100 favorite movies of all time, but I can pretty much guarantee that within five minutes it will have totally been rearranged. I hate reading. Cartoons. Okay, to be fair, I don't always hate reading. While much of the reading I've been doing lately has been on philosophy and theology, I think the first books that I kind of enjoyed reading at a young age were comics. Before that though, I suppose it was the number of Disney's animated films I'd grown up with that got me hooked on cartoons and animation, and the fact that I loved to draw surely played a part in it as well. The primary cartoons that I fell in love with were the Looney Tunes, and I have always had a special fondness for Bugs Bunny, who wonderfully exemplifies the important virtue of using cleverness and creativity to solve problems. I expect it was his sense of humor that made me really enjoy the humor of Spider-Man in the 1994 animated series, because he would always keep his cool and crack lots of jokes as he took on the villains. The old web-slinger was my gateway into comics, but the comic series I really enjoyed reading was Archie Comics. I still remember seeing one of the Archies in the checkout at the grocery store, and I picked it up out of curiosity. That exact comic is now up on my nostalgia shelf, and I've since garnered a pretty decent collection of comics in different series, and I'm rather proud of them. I'm currently reading the Miss Marvel series that was recommended by Mike Rugnetta in a video from the PBS Idea channel, and I read a couple of others here and there. What I'm more interested in, however, is animation. It's no secret that I love talking tunes with Rob Paulson, and it's no surprise because I've always been curious about what goes on behind the scenes in making a cartoon. I've actually watched a lot of the early Disney cartoons starring Oswald the Lucky Rabbit because I do love animation history, but I still prefer the Warner cartoons over the Disney's. I've also spent way too much time watching several, several different Hanna-Barbera cartoons, loads of Tom and Jerry, and a bit of Droopy and Rocky and Bullwinkle and such. It's a fascinating field of entertainment, and I still love learning more and more about it. Science Fiction I don't know what exactly first piqued my interest in science fiction, but I'm pretty sure my uncle is to blame. I can tell you that I tend to enjoy sci-fi TV shows more than sci-fi movies, and I also know that the first sci-fi show that I got hooked on was The Twilight Zone. There was just something about an artistic show that simply explored fascinating ideas and twisted reality a little to reveal something about mankind that's it's right up my alley. I wouldn't have time to list all of the episodes that are really important to me, mostly because I keep forgetting their names. So what followed was an interest in Star Trek, and I think that once again the messages and ideas about the nature of human beings must have been what got my attention. I've never been quite sure whether I identify more with Spock or Bones, but whenever the three main characters on the show play off of one another, it's a good time. My favorite episodes are probably The Trouble with Tribbles, The Menagerie Parts 1 and 2, The City on the Edge of Forever, A Piece of the Action, and probably most of all, I Mud. 
My favorite quote from the show is Spock's classic line from And the Children Shall Lead, Humans do have an amazing capacity for believing what they choose and excluding that which is painful. Once I finished that series, I naturally moved right along to Next Gen, and I've been working my way through the series ever since. More recently, however, I've started watching Doctor Who, and I've enjoyed that show immensely. I think my favorite Doctor is the Tenth Doctor because I seem to relate to him the best. That pretty much sums up the bulk of my interest in sci-fi, but I should mention again that I'm a sucker for the stuff on Mystery Science Theater 3000. Music The road to my current music interests started with wanting to be cool, because remember, I was trying to attract the ladies at the age of seven. So, for some odd reason, I associated cool with the 1950s, and I became a fan of, and imitator of, Elvis Presley. My favorite song of his was Hound Dog, and I soon familiarized myself with a lot of the other popular rock and roll of the 50s and 60s, as well as some of the other pop from the time. One, two, three o'clock, four o'clock, rock. Five, six, seven o'clock, eight o'clock, rock. Nine, ten, eleven o'clock, twelve o'clock, rock. We're gonna rock around the clock tonight. Perhaps it was the influence of The Muppet Show, or maybe it was my mother, but at some point I got really into pop from the 70s as well, starting with a particular emphasis on the early soft rock. I knew it, I was listening to the radio station that played the greatest hits of the 60s, 70s, and 80s all the time, and I got to know what all the biggest genres were at the time pretty well. I gravitated towards the 80s songs with the best saxophone solos, but I can't really explain why that particular instrument charms me so much.
It was definitely my uncle's influence that got me into jazz, starting with the hits of the big band era. This was quickly followed by an interest in the crooners and the Rat Pack. I just kept adding more and more styles of music to my iTunes library, and now the stuff I enjoy listening to is all over the place. It could be anything. My first concert was seeing Herman's Hermits, opened by Gary Puckett and the Union Gap, and it was delightful. Since then, my favorite band has become Electric Light Orchestra, although I have a hard time explaining just why. Uh, Most of the work that they have done is in a style that I like, uh, but they have such a broad variety in style while still keeping an ELO feel. I think that's it, that's gotta be it. I, I don't really know. Maybe it also has something to do with the fact that Jeff Lynn's singing and songwriting, uh, they just speak to me personally for some odd reason that I just, I, I may never understand. My other favorite groups include Postmodern Jukebox, Pet Shop Boys, the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra, and way too many others for me to mention. I've also been listening to a lot of Brian Wilson, Herb Alpert, and Dave Brubeck over the past few months, and they've become huge inspirations for me. I don't know that I could ever select one favorite song, but I can come close by giving you a top three in alphabetical order. 
The first is Maria from West Side Story, as performed by the London Pops Orchestra. This piece was pleasant when I first heard it, but I didn't really notice its beauty right away. It took a little time before I must have cranked up the volume a bit and let myself wallow in its dramatic majesty. It's a brilliantly written song, but no recording of it could ever top this one. Next up is Not Alone Anymore by the Traveling Wilburys with singing by Roy Orbison. This song captivated me immediately. It's clearly got the Jeff Lynne influence, it's produced perfectly, the lyrics hit me right in the gut and pull on my heartstrings, and Orbison's voice just knocks the song out of the park. It's pretty much the ideal song for pleasing J.D. Hansel, and it is highly underrated.
Lastly, this third song really speaks to me. It's my Hey Jude, if you will, and I honestly wasn't all that crazy about it the first time I heard it. It took me a little while to get sucked into it, but once I did, I couldn't get out. The song is called Wishing from the outstanding Electric Light Orchestra album Discovery, so please dim the lights where applicable, reach the deepest state of zen you possibly can, and enjoy this fabulous masterpiece. Don't you cry 
Well, you know me, I'm too passionate about too many songs to limit myself to just a few favorites, and I've obviously had a bazillion songs that just in the past couple of years I've thought were my favorite of all time, so now I have to present the honorable mentions list. This is not including Muppet songs because those are in a separate box in my brain and I don't even think of those as songs, at least not in the sense that you listen to them regularly. I don't know, my brain's weird, but here we go. In alphabetical order, A Little Bit of Love by Paul Williams, All My Loving by Herb Alpert and the Tawana Brass, Almost Like Being in Love, Nat King Cole, Always On My Mind, I'm gonna go with the Pet Shop Boys version, Aranjuez Mon Amour by Herb Alpert, he does such a great rendition of that song. That one is so close to being my favorite song of all time. Baker Street by Gary Rafferty. Jerry Rafferty? Gary Rafferty? I never know. Or uh, Royal Philharmonic Orchestra or Maynard Ferguson. Everyone who's done Baker Street, to my knowledge, has knocked the song out of the park. It's brilliantly written. Uh, Beyond the Sea by Jeff Lynne. 
Calico Skies, Paul McCartney, Cage of Freedom, John Anderson, Can You Forgive Her by the Pet Shop Boys, Chim Chim Cherry from Mary Poppins, written by the Sherman Brothers, Come On Marianne by Frankie Valli and the Four Seasons, Crazy On You by Heart, gosh I love that one, it's, it's gotta be my favorite song, Crystallize, particularly the remix by Lindsey Sterling, Dancing from Xanadu by Olivia Newton-John and the Tubes, also so amazing it has to be my favorite, Don't Bring Me Down, Electric Light Orchestra, Don't Dream It's Over, Crowded House, Don't Walk Away, Electric Light Orchestra again, Don't Worry Baby, The Beach Boys, Doomsday from Doctor Who by Murray Gold, Edge of Seventeen by Stevie Nicks, gotta be my favorite, Eleanor by The Turtles, A Thousand and One Nights from Twisted by Team Starkid, Europa, Earth's Cry, Heaven Smile by Gato Barbieri, love that one, Everybody Loves You Now by Billy Joel, Exactly Like You, that's a great jazz standard, I'm going to go with the Sam Cooke version as my favorite, Eye of the Storm, of course, by Jerry Nelson, Falling of the Rain by Billy Joel, Fish on the Sand, George Harrison, Funeral for a Friend slash Love Lies Bleeding, I'm going to count those as one song because it's it's clearly meant to be one track, that's by Elton John and, oh man, that one wows me every time, That's that's got to be my favorite. Go Away Little Girl, Richard Groove Holmes, Goofus by The Carpenters, Harden My Heart, Quarter Flash, He Lives in You from uh, The Lion King on Broadway, I actually really like the Tina Turner version, uh, Heading for the Light by Traveling Wilburys again, Heartbreaker, Pat Benatar, Heaven Only Knows, Electric Light Orchestra, Hello My Ragtime 80s, Scott Bradley, High Anxiety by Mel Brooks from the film of the same name, Hollywood Nights by Bob Seger and the Silver Bullet Band. You can't drive slowly when that song comes on on the radio. You gotta drive fast. It's It's got such a power over me. Hungry Heart by Bruce Springsteen. I Call Your Name by pretty much whoever does this song. It's always done well. Brilliantly written tune originally by The Beatles. I Drove All Night, Roy Orbison. I Got Rhythm, Brian Wilson. I Love You, The Zombies. I Only Want to Be With You, uh... Once again, anyone who covers this song does a great job with it because it's so well written. Um, I'm going to go with the Bay City Rollers version as the best one. I Thought It Was You by the musical legend Herbie Hancock. I Want to Be Your Lover by the Cascades. If You Wanna, Paul McCartney. I'm Still Standing, Elton John. It Had Better Be Tonight, also known as Megliostasera from The Pink Panther by Henry Mancini. It's a Sin. Uh, also, Henry Mancini does a great job with this song on an underrated album of his, and I'm not sure whether I prefer the Henry Mancini version or the Pet Shop Boys version, but either one, it's a sin. Great song. Probably my absolute favorite. It's Not For Me To Say by Johnny Mathis, Just For Love, Electric Light Orchestra, Just What I Needed, The Cars, Kiss The Girl, Brian Wilson, boy does he knock that song out of the park, Kodachrome, Paul Simon, Lady Willpower, Gary Puckett and the Union Gap, Last Train to London, Electric Light Orchestra, Lightning Strikes, Lou Christie, Little Star, The Elegance, Little Town Flirt, I'm going with the ELO cover, Love's Theme, Love Unlimited Orchestra, Love Her Madly by The Doors, gosh, that's got to be my favorite, Mas Que Nada by, well, Sergio Mendez actually is the one who did that song most famously, and I really, really like his recording of it, but I've also got the Al Hurt recording. It's it's just a well-done song in terms of the writing, so whoever performs it generally does a good job. I don't know how to pronounce this one correctly. I should, but uh, Maui Hawaiian Superman by... Oh gosh, I cannot pronounce his name. Uh, Israel Kamakawiwoholi. 
I have no idea. It's a good song. Look it up if you can. Me and My Shadow. I'll go with Frank Sinatra and Sammy Davis Jr. from their Rat Pack recordings. Misty by Ray Stevens, actually. Uh, Moment in Paradise by Electric Light Orchestra. Mr. Blue Sky, Electric Light Orchestra. My Cherie Amour. I originally fell in love with the Stevie Wonder version, but now I actually really like Woody Herman's saxophone cover. Night and Day. Johnny Mathis, he does a great disco version of it, but anyone who does Night and Day, it's it's just a well-written song. I've actually never heard it done as well as I would like to hear it, um, I, because I have my own particular idea in mind for how I would do Night and Day, and no one I know comes close to that, but the best that I've heard thus far, uh, I mean, I love the Ella Fitzgerald version, but I'm going to have to give it to Johnny Mathis. Uh, no Matter What by Badfinger. I nominate that one for the greatest song of all time. Fantastic song. No Time by The Guess Who, One Fine Day, Carol King, Phantom of the Opera from the, the cast of Phantom of the Opera, or by Lindsay Sterling, she does a great cover, uh, Rhiannon, Fleetwood Mac, Right Down the Line, Jerry Rafferty, Rise by Herb Alpert from the album of the same name, one of the best albums ever recorded, Roar by Scott Bradley's postmodern jukebox featuring Annie Goodchild, Runaway, The Traveling Wilburys, Second Chance, The Cascades, Separate Ways, Worlds Apart by Journey. Serenade by the Steve Miller Band. Oh man, that one, it's surely my favorite song of all time. Shine a Little Love by Electric Light Orchestra. Showdown, also Electric Light Orchestra. Silly Love Songs, Paul McCartney. So Fine, Electric Light Orchestra again. So This Is Love, the Dave Brubeck Quartet. Somebody's Baby, Jackson Brown. Man, that one's so good. It's, it's gotta be my favorite song. Uh, Somewhere They Can't Find Me, Simon and Garfunkel. Sorrow About to Fall, ELO, Speak Low, Gato Barbieri, Street Life, Herb Alpert, Suburbia, The Pet Shop Boys, Sure Gonna Miss Her, Gary Lewis and the Playboys, Surrender, ELO, Swag, Lindsey Sterling, Take Five, The Dave Brubeck Quartet, I can see why they consider that to be uh, the greatest jazz song ever recorded, it's brilliant, The Answer by The Guess Who, The Promise by When in Rome, Theme from Firepower, Gato Barbieri, they Can't Take That Away From Me, Brian Wilson. This Is Love, George Harrison. Too Close For Comfort, Frank Sinatra. Turn To Stone, Electric Light Orchestra. Undone by The Guess Who is... That song actually has the best ending um, of all of the songs I've ever heard. It ends very, 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 very strongly. And if I had a top five list of favorite songs instead of a top three, that one would certainly be in there. It's my favorite song ever. Unsquare Dance by the Dave Brubeck Quartet. Think of this one all the time. Never able to get it unstuck from my head. It's brilliant. Uh, Venture Highway by America. Wait Till My Bobby Gets Home by Darlene Love. Produced by Phil Spector. Uh, Walk Away by Del Shannon. That one's amazing. Surely my favorite song. We Can't Stop. Only the Scott Bradley and Postmodern Jukebox version. Where or When. Dion and the Belmonts. Who Loves You, Frankie Valli and the Four Seasons, Xanadu, Electric Light Orchestra, You Are the Girl by The Cars, You Got It by Roy Orbison, You Keep Me Hanging On, uh, I, I know I should say the Supremes, but honestly I prefer the Kim Wilde version, that one is so intense and I love it. You're 16, You're Beautiful and You're Mine, written by the Sherman Brothers, and the recording of it that I prefer is Ringo Starr's. And lastly, Young Boy by Paul McCartney, another one that would probably be in my top five list if I had it because this one really does speak to me in a way that so few other songs can. That's, that's got to be my favorite song in, in the history of songs. 
And that's all 120 of my honorable mentions. So let's see how we're doing on time here. Oh my gosh, we went over an hour. Okay, well that was easy. Um, actually, what you guys don't know is just how many hours I have put in to making this show for the past several days. I mean, this is, this has gobbled up most of my week, and then some. So, the second half of the show, JD Hansel Radio, I'm going to have to postpone to the next episode of 11 Point Collar. So, when you come back, you can expect part two of this dive into the brain of JD Hansel, and you're going to hear a lot of great music. So mentally prepare yourselves for that, since it's going to be a pretty different show from your usual 11-point collar, and pretty different from this, I should think, since it's pretty much all music all throughout. But, uh, well, until next time, waka waka, wubba wubba, and weeba weeba. Oh. <laughs>